Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota on Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Hello and welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here today as we are here every time we meet for our super secret podcast to talk about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. And today we have my good friend Deacon Stephen Gradonis on the show. Hello, Deacon Stephen Gradonis. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we, are, uh, we are recording this on um, uh, March uh, 14th. Uh, there's, there's just been a, a lot of historic things uh, happening uh in the last couple of days among them as we will be discussing uh is the death of stephen hawking yes who, who died on albert einstein's birthday as it happens get out really i did yes. not know that well that's that seems fitting doesn't it mm. and, uh, let's see as we speak the the uh, the first there's going to be another one in 10 days uh, uh student walkout uh protesting our gun regime is happening uh happened today i think it's already pretty much over across most of the us but uh that happened and uh i'm so proud of those kids um and uh in as well disney has released uh perhaps the greatest movie since independence day resurgence i i don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and all of this well the the gun stuff we won't be tying in but uh, the rest of it stephen hawking and uh, uh a wrinkle in time uh and tesseracts plus the eucharist uh we'll all be tying it together in a fascinating way and, and all of these topics really in my mind it's not even something that has to be tied in because a wrinkle in time and madeline langle and Stephen Hawking and a brief history of time and Eucharistic theology all already kind of dovetail. And it's just remarkable to me that Hawking's death and the release of this movie came out in such close proximity to each other. In fact, the day that Stephen, Haw the day before Stephen Hawking died yesterday, I had actually written an article about topics like wormholes and quantum physics and uh, tesseracts, which is kind of the Madeleine Langle version of, of a wormhole in relation to Eucharistic theology. And then, and I was even consulting one of my uh, Stephen Hawking books that I own. And, and then the next day I woke up and, and he had died and it was kind of weird. I felt as if, you know, I had just been talking to him, which of course I hadn't. Well, you know, it's it is fascinating because uh, you know, one of the things that I learned this from, and I wish I could find his source for it, but years ago I remember hearing uh, Father Benedict Groeschel 
make the remark that Albert Einstein was fascinated with the concept of transubstantiation. And that he had discussed it with Father Georges Lemaitre, the, uh, the father of the Big Bang Theory. Really? I did not yes. know that. That is my understanding. And like you, it's, this is just a story that I've heard, and I, I, can't, I can't substantiate it either. Okay. But, but I, I have heard that the two of them discussed it. And it's, I would love to tie that in to my general thoughts about uh, exotic physics topics and, and the Blessed Sacrament, because it kind, of, it kind of dovetails with all the other things that I'm thinking on these subjects. I, I remember uh, years ago... Uh, Frankie Schaefer. Frankie Schaefer is the uh, the son of Francis Schaefer, uh, who is pro- I would argue is probably the one of the most influential evangelical theologians uh, in the late 20th century uh, in the United States. And uh, Frankie Schaefer uh, uh, eventually left evangelicalism, became Orthodox. Uh, and uh, years ago, he came to Seattle and he was giving a talk at one of the Orthodox churches in Seattle. This is like 30, 25 years ago, something like this. And um, uh, Sherry Waddell and I went to go hear him speak. And he talked about uh, when he was taking instruction to become Orthodox. And in the Eastern churches, uh, the Orthodox communions, I, and I think perhaps even some of the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, I don't know. Uh, the practice is to not only baptize infants, but also confirm them and uh, give them First Communion. Yes. Uh, and so he was talking to this priest who was catechizing him, and, uh, and he said, why do you do that? And the priest said, what? He said, why do you give the Eucharist to infants? They don't even know what it is. And the, <laughs> I can feel it coming. <laughs> you can feel it coming. Can <laughs> the priest, the priest looked at him and said, "Do you?" <laughs> and he thought, "Yeah, you know." And that really is that. That at the end of the day, is always, of course, where we stand with the mystery of of the Eucharist. So there are some people who have this notion, some converts I think are afraid of this, that if you become Catholic, you're going to have to understand transubstantiation in order to like qualify to ex- receive the Eucharist and nothing <laughs> could be further from the truth. No. Uh, uh, no. Tr- transubstantiation is uh, uh, the church's best stab at trying to put a name to or describe uh, something that is ultimately beyond language. Well, and and to describe it within a particular philosophical framework. So within the framework of St. Thomas Aquinas' appropriation of Aristotelian metaphysics, transubstantiation is the approved way of describing the mystery of the real presence. But the particular formulas depend on this particular metaphysic and and the church does not insist 
on this particular model as being the only valid model or having a unique validity. In fact, when the Council of Trent went to define transubstantiation, although it used the term substance from transubstantiation that, that Aquinas had, had borrowed from Aristotle, did not use the technical term accidents. Hmm. Uh, so it didn't insist on a particular relationship of the outward appearances to the underlying substance. And, right. and I think that that was a wise move. And I'm, I'm glad that the council um, um, made that that yeah. kind of slight departure from purely philosophically precise transubstantiation as defined by Aquinas. Right. And so what you you know, what it comes back to C.S. Lewis uh, once gave an illustration, which I thought was uh, is still very apropos of all of that sort of thing. He said, for thousands of years, people ate their dinners and felt better afterwards. And then one day, uh, with Lewis's writing, literally it was one day, like a couple of decades before Lewis was writing, <laughs> somebody came up with the theory of vitamins and said there appear to be some kind of chemicals that we call vitamins that uh, are, are essential to nutrition. And, you know, now we know more. We know about carbohydrates and proteins and all the rest of it. Uh, but he said, you know, if you never understood the theory of vitamins, you would go on eating your dinner and feeling better. And if someday vitamins are proved not to exist at all, you will still go on <laughs> eating your dinner and feeling better because what matters is take this and eat it, not take and understand. And uh, so, you know, for those whose job it is to try to understand these things, as it was for Thomas Aquinas, fine. Uh, but all we're asked, literally all we're asked uh, is – you know, when we go up to receive, somebody presents us with the host and says the body of Christ, and all you have to do is say, amen. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to have a clue, which is great, because I don't have a I – am, I am totally with Frankie Schaefer. I, I don't know what the Eucharist is. It's the body of Christ. What does that mean? You know, well, well – uh, and, and I – you were there. You were there. Uh, in the early 90s, as and in the late 80s, as as I as a as a young evangelical was grappling with this subject, we mm -hmm. were already kind of pen pals, mm -hmm. and um, I was struggling to understand what was meant by saying that here is this stuff that has every apparent chemical and physical property of what we call bread and wine. And yet you're telling me that it's it's not bread and wine and that you're telling me that it is the body and blood of Christ. And right. whether or not I believed it, I was I was I was trying to wrap my head around what was being claimed. Mm -hmm. And it it turned out ultimately that some of the pieces that went into what I, I now think of as my understanding of this subject insofar as it could be understood were laid uh, more than a decade earlier in my my um, teens and possibly even into my, my single digit uh, ages when I first read A Wrinkle in Time by yes. Madeline Langle. Yes, go for it. So A Wrinkle in Time contains a very elegant little explanation of the idea of what most of us would call warping time and space or a wormhole. Madeleine Langle had a highly 
idiosyncratic usage, she referred to this as a tesseract, the verb to tesser. And she borrowed this word from higher geometry. There's a, a four dimensional shape called a tesseract that you get by squaring a cube. So you square a square and you get a cube and then you square the cube and you can't draw it in three dimensional space, but you, you get this four dimensional shape called a tesseract. And so, and in our, in Einstein's understanding, time is the fourth dimension. And then if there's a fifth dimension, if you imagine a fifth dimension outside of four dimensional space time, then space time becomes something that you can bend and warp and wrinkle, a wrinkle in time and, and bring together two distant points. For instance, um, you know, Bloomfield, New Jersey, where I am, am speaking to you from, and, you know, Alpha Centauri or, or uh, Uriel or, or some other distant place or even, even Seattle, Washington. You could, you could bring the two spaces together and all I, I take one step and I'm I'm instantly someplace far removed from where I am. And she has this nice little explanation with uh, the hem of Mrs. What's-It's skirt and an ant crawling from her one hand to her other hand. But what happens if you bring the hands together and the ant instantaneously crawls over? And that lit a light in my mind. Hmm. And when I went on to, you know, encounter similar ideas in Disney's The Black Hole and in later science fiction, uh, there's, a, there's a wormhole in, in Deep Space Nine and all that. Madeline Lenkel had given me the foundation for understanding all of that. And then later right. on, I went on to discover Stephen Hawking and reading science fiction and so forth. And, um, and all of this came conceptually in handy when I began to try to understand Eucharistic theology. Yes, because uh, something very similar uh, conceptually is happening here, because, especially because we are now dealing with, of course, a God who uh, stands outside time and space. Right. But, and, and, and also in relation, you know, he has, he's become incarnate. Mm -hmm. He's become localized. And his body now has transcended the universe of time and space through what we call the ascension. And we say that he is in heaven and we say that he's seated at the right hand of the father. But as a physical body, he can only be locally present in one place at one time. Mm -hmm. But then I encountered the idea and, and every, everybody was telling me that Jesus is present in the Eucharist. He's present literally and physically and spiritually and in his humanity and in his divinity and in his flesh and in his blood. But then I learned that there's one way in which Jesus is said not to be present in the Eucharist. This was eye opening for me. Okay. Thomas Aquinas says Jesus is not present in the Eucharist as in a place. Cardinal Newman uses the term locally present. Jesus is not locally present in the Eucharist. I thought, what does this mean? So I did a little digging. All it right. turns out, it turns out that Jesus is not in the Eucharist movably, according to Aquinas. So when the priest elevates the host, Jesus is not elevated in space. And obviously, when you break the host, Jesus is not broken in two. And when you chew the host, Jesus is not mangled in your mouth. Right. Jesus is not present in the host in what Aquinas calls um, 
after the proper manner of dimensive quantity, or as we would say, he's not spatially distributed throughout the host. It's not like his head is in the top part and his feet are in the bottom part. <laughs> okay. So when you put all this together, the, the idea that Jesus is present as in a place only in heaven, it becomes apparent that what God is doing in the Eucharist is he's bending aside time and space to make present on earth what is properly present in its natural mode only in heaven. So Jesus becomes present to our altars on earth, but he doesn't come down out of heaven. He doesn't move out of heaven. Reality bends aside so that what is in heaven becomes present to us on earth. It's like, it's like a, a wormhole has opened up. On the altar. Of course, it's not a wormhole because, you know, it's it's not a hole into anything. It's, it's this little disc, you know, mm -hmm. in the priest's hands or, or on our tongues. <laughs> uh -huh. But but that's that's the idea. Okay. Golly, you can get, you know, this is, uh, yeah, I could, I could see how a physicist would be looking at this and thinking, this is super weird and cool, and it reminds me of my own discipline somehow. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Who was it? Uh, somebody makes the remark. I forget who. Uh, Eddington? I can't remember. Somebody once uh, made the remark that um, uh, the first the first drafts of science can uh, uh, can lead you to atheism, but at the bottom of the cup, there's always theism. <laughs> Yes, I, I, for you. I, I think I've heard that. I, I forget who said it, but uh, but yeah. Uh, well, okay, okay. So um, Hawking, unfortunately, seems to have kind of moved in the opposite direction. There, right. there was a point earlier in his career when when he wrote uh, a brief history of time where he seemed to recognize that science could answer the question so far and no further. So he said, even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it? And I love this sentence. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Right. Yeah. Later on, when he wrote The Grand Design, co-wrote it with another another author, um, he had decided to settle on the, the standard. And this was, you know, certainly not a new revelation to him. This is a theory that's been around for a long time on the idea that something called spontaneous creation can explain it through science. So right. he said, because there is the law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. It is not necessary to invoke God to touch the blue, to touch the, to light the blue touch paper. Right. It's going. And of course, Stephen Barr, the excellent Catholic physicist and others have been very quick to point out that <laughs> when you start saying because there's a law like gravity, you're not really starting with nothing, are you? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It, well, it was it was you know one of the one of the unfortunate things about uh, uh, about Hawking in his later years that was that he he sometimes just said things that were crazily outside of his field you know we all yes. we we all we need to move to mars because of you know <laughs> climate change uh we we have to get off this planet i was like isn't that kind of drastic i mean 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there were there were those kinds of things. And and yeah, the uh the claim that uh the law of gravity made it you know, made it possible to have creation without God uh I mean, and he's perfectly right about the possibility of spontaneous creation in the sense that right. you know, given the law of gravity, you you can get matter and antimatter springing into existence in in equal sure. and opposite quantities which you know which then raises the question where is all the antimatter I and mean, that's just one of the other really weird mysteries of of the universe but right but you still need the law of gravity you still and and, and this is a particular quantum state among many quantum states and it has its own well defined rules and so forth and so there is this framework that what you call the zero or what you call the no universe state the no universe state is not nothing the no universe state is a particular quantum state that allows for spontaneous creation to exist. Right. So and why is there a no universe state instead of just simply a blank nothing? Right. It comes. It always comes back. And this is what Thomas recognized uh, was, you know, it always comes back to the question: Why is there something rather than nothing? And yes. if that something is, you know, this uh, field of quantum flux, why? Why is right. it there? You know, <laughs> because it's not nothing. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, so, so anyway, well, God rest his soul, Stephen Hawking. And, uh, you know, oh, by the way, this brings me just to a, a brief aside that I want to bring in because, uh, uh, a friend of mine, a woman named Jacqueline Abernathy was remarking on this today on Facebook. She says, whenever you move past simply praying for the souls of the departed, especially famous people, mm -hmm. you cannot uh, start speculating on their eternal destiny without committing heresy. And I, no, I, I no. totally, well, her, her point was this. You, no, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with her. I'm, oh, okay. I'm the, the, the appalling, you know, the, the biz, whole business of speculation, I, I think is just right. I, I, terrible. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, you immediately had the, you know, the, um, uh, let's beat up atheist crowd all saying, well, you know, we know where he's at now, you know. Yes. And, you know, which is appalling, but just as appalling, because we do not know, <laughs> is to say, well, you know, he's certainly with God now and, you know, and has made his peace with God. We don't know that either. We do yeah. not know. Uh, and so here's, you know, here's what we know. Here's what we know. God is good. And we can trust him. Exactly. That's what right. we know. That was, and that was her prayer was, um, you know, for the, for the eternal repose of the soul of Stephen Hawking, Jesus, I trust in you. And that, that is a perfectly legitimate prayer that you can, you can pray. And in fact, you're encouraged to pray by the tradition. Uh, absolutely. You should pray uh, for mercy uh, on the soul of every person who has died. And beyond that though, don't start, you know, gloating about how he's uh, – especially don't start gloating about how so-and-so is in hell uh, unless, of course, you're eager to go there yourself and find out uh, because there is no more wicked prayer that you can pray than for the damnation of, of another person. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. There, there <laughs> don't do that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, don't start making confident uh, statements about things that you do not know. Uh, so 
Pray for the Repose of the Soul of Stephen Hawking. And I either of those two things, it seems to me, either to pronounce on his damnation or to pronounce on to, to presume on his receiving of mercy. I, I think I think both of those reflect a profound lack of faith. Right. Because faith includes trust, trust in God's goodness. And if you feel the need to pronounce on the outcome, then you need to kind of take control of reality. You need to sort of instruct God on how things should be and and assert your own competence to judge these things. And and I, I find it to be enormously liberating to simply entrust Stephen Hawking's soul to God, right, and and to have no opinion at all yeah. uh, until I see God face to face myself. We can, and in fact, the, the tradition encourages us to hope uh, that hope is a virtue. Yes, and precisely the enemies of hope are expressed in both of those uh, those pontifications about someone's eternal destiny. The twin enemies of hope are. Uh, presumption and despair because both of the hope is ordered toward eternity both presumption and despair are the claim to know with certitude the end of the story which you do not and cannot know uh and and that's why does that come from where does that come from the, the the motive and the need to know the end of the story? I think it it comes from not trusting the storyteller. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and so um, all of that is to just take this brief moment to say, um, pray for the repose of Stephen Hawking's soul and for all those who have died. Uh, but don't start telling me, you know, that you know how it's ended. Well, what about saints? People will say the church certainly says that. Yes. Yes. And and you know what? The church is competent to say so and so lived a life on earth, which shows us the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so we can say with certitude uh, that the saints uh, behold the face of God. We can do that uh, when on, the church. Right. We cannot. And, and you'll notice that there is no corresponding role of the damned. Uh, There are no anti-saints. There are no anti-saints. The church has never said and will never say uh, that, you know, Adolf Hitler is in hell, for example. Or Judas Iscariot. Or Judas Iscariot. We can't know that because God has not revealed it to us. Uh, God does give the church uh, sufficient light to say so-and-so has been saved and is a saint. And... And, and that is a manifestation of the communion of the saints. So we can, we can arrive at confidence and confident knowledge and ultimately even infallible knowledge regarding the presence of certain blessed souls in heaven because we are united to them through Jesus Christ. We share a common fellowship. And right. so through, our, through earthly devotion to them, through prayers to the saints – uh, we receive confirmations from heaven. We, we receive miraculous signs and and the Holy Spirit in the lives of the faithful uh, and, and guiding the magisterium through the charism of truth leads the church into confidence that certain people who are acclaimed for their earthly virtue are in fact in heaven. We have no pipeline to hell. We just have, we have absolutely no communion with hell. We have no way of knowing anything about it at all. Yes, but we do. There is one thing we know. We know that cats are in hell. 
you you know you know that I I go to a parish that is has a part English and, and part Spanish community, right? Okay. So so I I have a I have a Catholic Spanish English joke for you. Okay. So so if if cats aren't good enough for for heaven, do you know where they go when they die? I give up. The English answer is purgatory. Oh. And the Spanish answer is <laughs> purgatorio. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay. I, I knew that you would be a special fan of that joke. Respect. <laughs> uh, a, a, a pun that works in two languages is – I think that's like the knee plus ultra of punning. So uh, I, I have I, – I got nothing. Uh, I, I, yours is the superior pun. That is fantastic. <laughs> so, Steve, while we're talking about Madeline Langle and A Wrinkle in Time, tell nice. me, uh, the movie – is it the best film since uh, since Independence Day Resurgence? Or well, well, it it certainly warrants the comparison. Um... <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> no, I would even say I would even say it benefits from the comparison. Um, okay. I, I I did not have the the soul sucking experience of despair watching A Wrinkle in Time that I had watching Independence Day Resurgence, and and yet and yet. I was completely uninvested in Independence Day resurgence in any way, shape, or form. Okay. So its failure did not distress me. Whereas on multiple levels, I wanted A Wrinkle in Time to be really good. I, I'm, uh -huh. I'm deeply invested in the novel by Madeline Langle, and, and this is partly for its spiritual themes, for its its uh, Christian uh, – not, not only the kind of Christian themes that are – under the surface, like in the children's fantasy of C.S. Lewis, but even explicit themes on the surface, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Who, one of one of these uh, three fantastic extraterrestrial beings, um, speaks almost exclusively in quotations. She quotes Jesus Christ. She quotes from the Psalms. The Psalms are quoted uh, elsewhere. Uh, she, you know, and there's there's a scene where they're talking about warriors against the darkness and and listing warriors from Earth's history. And the very first one given pride of places is, is Jesus. Charles Wallace says, Jesus. Why, of course, Jesus. And then, you know, they go on to to list others, uh, uh, scientists and religious leaders, um, um, Buddha and, uh, and and so forth. Um, but but Christianity is very much in in the warp and, and, and weft of the novel. Also, mm -hmm. of course, for its for its science fiction themes, um, I as, as I said, it, it opened a, a door in my mind. And this movie actively avoids both of those things. It's so afraid of the scientific ideas that they actually filmed. You remember I told you about that dialogue with the ant crawling across the skirt. Right. They, yeah. they filmed a sequence based on that. Even including the line, a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. You can still see it in the trailer, but they cut it from the finished film. That's it was just <laughs> too sciency, I guess. You know, we're, we're trying to inspire children. We don't want to ask them to think. That's I mean, that's like an easy visual. It's made for movies. Absolutely. In, in fact, uh, there are illustrations in the text, not just illustrations in the book, but in the actual text, there are inline illustrations. It, like you said, it's, it's visual. It's made for cinema. Right. And yeah. then 
all of the quotations from the Bible, the, the reference to Jesus, everything in any way spiritual has been expunged. Buddha is quoted at one point, but it's a you know just a very simple parable about nothing or a, a um, proverb about nothing. And then the her Mrs. Hu's whole style of quotation is really dumbed down. We we get quotations from Lin Manuel Miranda and Outcast. Yeah. yeah, there's an occasional Shakespeare and so forth, but but this is fundamentally the vibe that I get from this movie is. It's a film that's trying so hard to be inspirational and uplifting that the filmmakers just didn't want to to do anything in any way challenging to the to the viewer. And I I, I think that's a mistake. I you know and I, I yeah I mean <laughs> this drives me nuts. This is where the insularity of Hollywood drives me crazy. Unless you get somebody like. Uh, Robert Duvall, for example, who has sufficient clout mm -hmm. to be able to uh, really just push his way past the culture uh, and make the film that he wants to make that's actually informed by real contact uh, with the Christian tradition. For example, I'm thinking of The Apostle here. Yes, which is just an amazing film. It's an astonishing film, and it is very – this – I don't know where he had the contact with it, but I cannot believe that that film was made by somebody who had no personal contact with that subculture of Christianity because he hits everything so perfectly. He understands that subculture so perfectly – uh, it was just it was a magnificent piece of of writing and direction and acting mm -hmm. a and um and it's a f it's a film that could only be made because Robert Duvall wanted to make it and he had the clout to do it uh uh but so often uh you'll get this kind of phenomenon i i, I don't see it a lot of people see dark conspiracy here i see just cultural blindness just unfamiliarity with uh, the source uh, the source material uh, that's well, being worked with. There is that, but I, I think there's something else too. I, I think that the gospel as proclaimed by Madeleine Langle kind of clashes with the gospel that this film wants to proclaim. I mean, I don't know whether it's Direct. I don't know whether there's a causal relationship or whether the fact that Oprah Winfrey was cast in the role of Mrs. Witch just mm -hmm. provides a, a convenient metaphor for for the film's milieu. But you know, Oprah, for better or for worse, is associated with a certain kind of pan American New Agey spiritual Austin yeah. live your best life right. self fulfillment sure self esteem gospel. And and that's very much the vibe that I'm getting from from this movie. And it's not it's not all I, bad. I, I agree with that. I guess my point is, uh, whoever wrote this script, uh, the director, uh, the the screenwriter for Frozen, as it happens. Okay. Uh, Another one of my favorite uh, movies. <laughs> I was gonna, I rest my case. I mean, uh, this is you know, I I don't. I chalk this more up to a kind of a blindness than to. Uh, malice. Uh, I, I think there are things that can't be seen and heard 
by that subculture, it just it doesn't translate. And so I, I don't know why she mentioned Jesus. I, I don't see there's any real point in having to do that. It, it seems to be more the mentality than we must stop all Christian references. And so it just, no, no, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think yeah. I think, in fact, I think she feels like she's translating Madeline Lengel's yeah. positive spirituality into a more universal and inclusive mode. Exactly <laughs> right. And that's, I, I think that's exactly what's happening. And it, it winds up being, it's like the battlerizers of the 17th century who improved Shakespeare. Ah, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there, there was not... Or, or the, the underwear artists in the Vatican. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the, 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 I, I'm sure that the, the galling thing is that I really do think that they're, they believe that they're trying to honor the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and and, and there, there, is, there is some, I, I would say it's not entirely not honored. And, and more importantly, I, w- I want to say, because I, I, I talked before about rooting for the film, one element that I didn't mention is that, as has been widely reported, A Wrinkle in Time is the first $100 million uh, live action feature film that has been directed by a woman of color. Okay. It has a diverse cast. Uh, making such an expensive movie with a young female protagonist of color. Um, um, Meg Murray is, is be- the story is updated from its ni- uh, mid 20th century white bread American setting to uh, diverse Los Angeles 21st century setting. And young uh, Storm Reed plays plays Meg Murray. And she's got um, her, her parents are uh, a mixed race marriage and. Um, the, so it's it's got a very diverse cast. All of this is being uh, taken on by Disney with, you know, there's there's some conviction behind that. And I am in right. favor of all these. I'm in favor of diversity and representation. Right. And and so all of these are, are and, and so they want part of the, the thing I think is the, the, the flaw and the failure of the film is that the the desire to put forth the, forward this diverse cast and to put such a positive portrayal of Meg to give young black girls someone on the big screen to look up to right. and, and to show uh, a, a mixed race marriage and a, and a family that is is happy and, and that has a strong inner integrity. You can feel the, the loving desire to, to capture all of this in the opening scenes of the film. And I appreciate all of that. But, you know, when you're afraid to give your protagonist real faults, and to show her as responsible in some measure for her own suffering and, and needing to face up to that and, and confront her personal failures because you right. just have to make her so positive. You know, you're going to lose a lot of dramatic potential there. Right. Yeah. And, and that is that I think that in a lot of ways, what it's trying to do is brave. Mm hmm. Um, uh, but. Yeah, that that's that's the that's the cost uh, that's being paid, and uh, it yeah, it, it could have been, you know, <laughs> it, yep. it, it, it's it's the movie that could have been that 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 makes you sad because uh, the, the the exactly the the tragedy in some ways I think is that uh, the the makers of the film really thought and believed that they were honoring their material uh and they it, because it, they can't see it they they can't 
see the Christian parts of it because, uh, and, and in some ways this is our fault as Christians, Christianity has become such a byword uh, in so much of that culture and for reasons that I can't blame them for. Uh, uh, and that troubles me as well. You know, this is one of the reasons, again, getting back to, for example, Robert Duvall. Um, you know, when Robert Duvall tells that story in The Apostle, we really do. We get somebody, we get a portrayal of somebody that you can see that Robert Duvall has real respect for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but who the, is also very, very well, flawed human being. Massively flawed human being, and he does not, he does not cut uh, any of that. We see what that guy is, what evil that guy is capable of. But at the same time, we also see uh, some of the most stunning portrayals, I think, of of a character who, if if memory serves, Duvall calls describes him as somebody who cannot not preach the gospel uh yes he's just he can't not do it and, and he is i was, I was having sincere. a conversation with a friend of mine a uh, long time ago back in the day um um who had who had just seen this film not not a christian um but but he was he was really struck by by this aspect of his character that he just he was so compelled to preach jesus <laughs> yeah and we it made me it made me think of of the line from the original terminator it's what he does it's all he does <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes exactly you know but you know at the same time you know you see this guy who has committed murder and uh done these horrible things you know but there's that you know that magnificent moment at the climax of the film you know where um um you know the racist comes to destroy this black church mm -hmm. and he goes out and he confronts that guy and he brings him to his knees you know and it was just it was an amazing moment uh, yeah. uh in the film just it, by the way you guys who are out there listening to this podcast if you have never seen the apostle oh you absolutely just drop everything and go out and rent the apostle it is a stunning experience not, and not just um, uh, acted in by Duvall, but but written by, directed, and and produced by him as well. This was yeah. a real labor of love, a oh, desire yeah. to to bring to the screen a, a much maligned uh, subculture of of Christianity in the American yeah. South. Yeah, and and really in a very, I think, you know, we were talking. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about Flannery O'Connor in relation to one of the Best Picture nominees, um, Three Billboards uh, Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that that film's effort to capture this kind of um, combination of the sacred and the profane and of, of grace amid grotesquerie, I don't think that it works in Three Billboards, but Duval nails it. I, I think Flannery O'Connor would have loved The Apostle. I think so too. I think so too. And she would have recognized. Uh, uh, he, she would have recognized that character and and all those people. Those, those were her people. Uh, yeah. And, and so um, I love that film so much. And it's one of the rare mo it, moments for me where Hollywood really managed uh, to tell a story about a Christian character with 
full respect for uh, that Christian character's uh, real Christian belief, and yet at the same time not make it into goo, mm-hmm. uh, but also not make it into a caricature, uh, uh, you know, of the idiot Christian who, uh, you know, is a hypocrite and blah blah blah. He is he is a hypocrite, and at the same time he is absolutely genuine. Yes, uh, that's you know that's the that's. That's and, and it really shows the work of grace because, of course, you know, p- p- part of the nature of the gospel is the gospel proposes to us a way of life that n- none of us live. We're all hypocrites. I mean, you know, every one of the apostles began their mission with hypocrisy. You know, the very first thing that Peter does uh, with his papacy is betray Jesus with it, you know, in his most desperate hour. And, uh, and yet that's, you know, these are the jars of clay, uh, that the, that the gospel is placed in. Uh, and the apostle really managed to convey that in a way that, uh, uh almost no film I've ever seen managed to do that. Uh, it mm-hmm. was, yeah, it was, uh, what a great film. Um, let me ask you, I was just curious, uh, we, we've just got a few minutes left here, uh, but uh, have you seen Annihilation by any chance? I, I have not. I'm interested okay. in seeing it, haven't seen it yet. Um, okay. There's there's a couple other movies that are, are coming out that I'm going to be interested in talking about, some connecting the dots fodder. But um, since we're talking about Stephen Hawking, I'd just like to mention, uh, if if you were thinking about possibly... Uh, renting or watching the theory of everything as as a way of kind of connecting with Hawking, I would. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> please, uh, Eddie, please. Eddie Redmayne gives an amazing performance, really capturing the whole kind of physical descent of of Stephen Hawking from being healthy to being at his most crippled and paralyzed. Um, but the movie kind of takes a it tries to cover so much of his life, it winds up being as shallow as a, as a Wikipedia article. And, and it's also really kind of hagiographical and glossing over uh, many of the complications of, of the character's life. I, I, it's not a movie that, I mean, it's, it, you can watch it for the performances. Uh, Felicity Jones, also fantastic, but, um, but not a very good movie. And, and I also want to say, since we've been talking about Hawking and the relationship of modern physics and ancient faith, and um, Stephen Barr has a, has a book by that title that I highly recommend, uh, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Um, I, I just wanted to throw out one of the really weird quirks of Western thought, which Hawking acknowledged in at least one of his books. I, I want to say it was more than one, but I'm not sure. Um, which is the the way that um, St. Augustine anticipated one of the revolutionary conclusions of Albert Einstein regarding the nature of time. Um, it's been widely joked that St. Augustine's response to the question, what was God doing before he created the universe, was devising a hell for people who ask such questions. <laughs> yes. But, but actually, Augustine 
came up with something that is just really astonishing. He said that time itself is part of the created world. So there was no time before God created the world. And that's something that is so difficult for us to imagine. I mean, the, the, uh, the Greek philosophers, uh, uh, Aristotle and Plato, they conceived of time as, as being infinite. And, and uh, it's, it's, we, it's hard for us to imagine time having a beginning or an ending. But, but St. Augustine glomped to that idea. And that was 1,500 years before Albert Einstein came along yeah. and put some physics behind it and, and came up with a convincing interpretation of time that without matter and energy and specifically without change, there would be no time. And so if the Big Bang is the beginning of, of the universe, um, then there was no time before the Big Bang. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think you're familiar with John Farrell. Right? He's yes. Wrote, he wrote a book about uh, about Monsignor Georges Lemaitre, who uh, uh, formulated the Big Bang Theory. Uh, the title of the book is The Day Without Yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, and of course, what's interesting as well, and, and St. Thomas reflects this too, St. Thomas saw no particular reason, simply by light of natural reason, uh, that Aristotle was not right and that the universe had not always existed. Right. Uh, the, the, the reason he believed in a beginning in time was because Revelation told him that. Uh, and he said, well, you know, my reason doesn't see why the universe can't have always been here, but uh, uh, God says that it wasn't always here, so that must be the case. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that for Aquinas, that had nothing to do with the argument from contingency. Right. Even if, even if the universe is an infinite regress and it's always been here, that makes no difference at all in the logical necessity that the contingent be dependent on the the necessary, and, right. and therefore you still need God in order to explain the universe. Exactly. And so one of the things that George Lemaitre uh, did when the Pope started to notice uh, his uh, theory about the Big Bang was he urged the church not to use his uh, theory as an argument for creation because it's not. Right. And, and uh, in fact – Pius, Pius XII actually kind of stepped on his toes there and went out and embraced the Big Bang Theory in just the way that, that Lemaitre really didn't want him to do. And he had to talk to the Pope about it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, those, those little overlaps between uh, reason and revelation there. Hey, we are, um, we are coming up against uh, the hour, but I want to thank you very much, uh, Deacon Stephen Gordonis, for uh, – uh, being on the show today. Uh, folks, if you want to uh, see more of uh, Steve's work, you can just check it out at uh, decentfilms.com. He also writes for the National Catholic Register. And you write for, are you writing for anybody else these days? Not, not too much. I, I am blogging at the Register and I, I have blog posts on um, tesseracts and wormholes in quantum physics and Eucharistic theology at the National Catholic Register. Also, a brief tribute to uh, Stephen Hawking and a reflection on, on his life. And, of course, my review of A Wrinkle in Time. All right. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. You have been listening to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we'll be back again uh, 
at a mysterious and undisclosed point in the future to talk more about the life, life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. Until then, have a wonderful Lent and talk to you again soon. Bye. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land gift shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you've helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give. These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit crsricebowl.org to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for those who are less fortunate. The Cincinnati Catholic Men's Conference is back. Tickets are on sale now for Saturday, April 28th at the Taft Theater at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. The Speaker Conference roster is being hailed as one of the best lineups in the country. In rare appearances, come see Father Mitch Pacwa from EWTN, the man motivator Father Larry Richards, former Moeller High School and University of Notre Dame head football coach Jerry Faust, and the big celebrity keynote, Baz Rutten, UFC world champion, MMA world champ, and movie star. The conference theme is what it means to be a true Christian man in today's society. Don't miss the incredible day of motivation, spiritual benefit, and fellowship with men from all walks of life. Get tickets now at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. That's CincinnatiMensConference.com or 513-214-1534. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at BreadboxMedia.com.